0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name's Arma Froak. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelsky, and I'm here with our guest, the one and only Ryan Staley, the CEO, the founder of Whale Boss, going and hunting some whale deals. Nick, why should people listen? Well,
1: most salespeople know that they do need to ask questions to their customers in order to help move the deal forward. And Ryan has brought a whole host of wonderful questions that you should be asking in your deal process.
0: This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.
1: All right, Ryan, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. Let's get your three.
2: Yeah, number one is the perfect customer profile. So what this is, is it's the five by five by five method that helped me go from as a rep and then later as a leader with my team, I leverage this, but as a rep helped me grow from basically barely hitting 100% of quota while working 60, 70 hours a week. And then I implemented this And it basically knocked off 20 hours a week of work while increasing my quota output to 140%. And so basically what it is, is all you need to do is look at the top five biggest deals that your company sold, the top five fastest deals that your company sold, and then the five biggest losses. And then look at the patterns across those. And you'll see where there's that sweet spot of really big deals that move really fast that'll maximize your time. Beautiful. What's number two, Ryan? number 2 is referrals for revenue so there's four steps to this there's the pathways the peaks the process and the persuasion and this is absolutely beautiful it's in my opinion it's a new category that sits in between inbound and outbound and what it does is it accelerates the sales process sometimes cuts the time in half while also making deal size 125 to 150% of the size now the beautiful thing is the pathways that's really like the incentives most people default to money or A gift card. A lot of times it's just helping people and being a good person by connecting them to someone who has a problem solved that they need to solve. second one, the peaks. What are the emotional experiences that the buyer goes through and how to align and ask at the right time? The next step is the process, okay? How do you drop that into an existing process and mirror that with your sales process so it's simple and hyper actionable? And then last is persuasion. That's built on the give to get model. If you give somebody something first that's customized and of value to them, Nine and a half times out of 10, their number one question is, how can I help you? Very cool. Round us out. What's number three, Ryan? Number three is 12 questions that close over $100 million. So as a wrap and as my team, one of the things I saw is there's certain questions that you can ask that make people extremely angry and others that get them to the customer or prospect to completely open up. And so they're really broken into three buckets and we're going to get into the details in the show. But number one is, Where do I stand? Number two is how do we get this done? And number three is when can we get this done?
0: All righty. So before we go into the 12 questions, you did the five by five. You looked at your biggest deals, your fastest deals, and then your five losses. What did you find in the sweet spot between those three that changed the way that you sell?
2: Yeah. So it was super interesting because it was one of those days where I was so frustrated and angry, Armand. And it was like I was working till two in the morning, cramming for a proposal. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way, right? This just sucks. There's got to be a better way. So if you look from a top-down approach, right? And basically what it was is I looked not at the C-level or not at the signer level, but I looked at the ownership level, okay? Because that's the invisible force that influences everything. So whether they're venture capital-backed, whether they're private equity-backed, whether they're publicly traded, or whether they're private, those ownership structures Totally change the focus and the priorities of people as you go through. So that's one example. Another example is the functional components down to a psychographic level. You know, are those customers that fit in those five biggest and five fastest deals? You know, do they like sports? Are they heavy drinkers? What do they enjoy outside of work? Right. Some of those details you get into. And then, you know, another one that I think is really know, so many people forget this, guys. And it's like, it's the trigger event. And you're like, right, what's the trigger event? So what I mean by that is if you look at a company that let's say recently merged with someone else. So mergers, they always talk about synergies, right? Or I should say uh, how they're gonna improve and optimize it. And so a lot of times they report to the street, we're gonna say, because of this merger, we're gonna have $500 million in cost efficiencies. And that's the CEO talking to their shareholders. So obviously that uplifts the priority of cost savings, which a lot of time is a trigger event that we as reps or leaders don't get to. And that uncovers that why deals are getting done. And so then basically you hunt and find those. And so then you're not like chasing, you know it's the right time and and they're really hyper responsive. So that's how I break it down. What people fail to do is they fail to learn from the losses,
0: especially. There was a, there were a series of events that were like, we were getting these meetings booked on our calendars from a certain persona at PAVE and PAVE sells to multiple personas, right? And what we found is that like every time we get on a call we'd be like, it goes to the second call and it goes to the third call but for some reason it doesn't close. And so what we did is we actually like pulled reports and we were like, hey, let's look at every single deal that started with this persona and see how many closed. And literally of the hundreds of deals we were working on, one. Close with that persona. And so now when we're prospecting, literally it's taken out of the SDR qualification criteria. AEs never focus on that persona, but the reality is like way too many people call these companies and God knows where the heck they're located with the wrong ICP, with the wrong companies, only to realize that the low hanging fruit is right in front of their face and they're not working their territory
2: the right way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a perfect example we're talking about. And, you know, like, cause what happened was we would look at it And I I did this when I developed the go-to-market plan too, because it worked so well when I was a rep. I'm like, I got to use this. And I saw, you know, it's starting to become really obvious which deals were the time wasters. And if you're dealing with enterprise deals that are nine months, if you could save nine months where your probability is less than 2% for someone on your team or as a rep, then that's a huge win because that's that's nine months you could spend on deals that are 10 times as likely to close.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about that, like, probability side of things and part of the way that I start to figure out okay is this deal legit is this deal really going to close is like I start to ask the customer questions about not just like the pain and the thing we're trying to fix for them but like the process and you mentioned that in the beginning with these 12 questions where it's like is this thing going to move how do we get this done can you talk about that 12
2: question framework and like what you're actually doing there okay so let's take the first one where do i stand okay and and so these are really trying to understand, like, are you nailing your solution with exactly what they need? And so I'll walk through those and hit those right here. So that one is like, does this solution exceed your expectations? Okay, very carefully worded, because even when customers don't give you an answer with these questions, they give you an answer, right? The second one is, is there any reason why you wouldn't move forward with this solution? Right? So once again, you're surfacing objections. Number three is, is there anything that our solution is missing that the competition has proposed? Okay. So mind you, people are afraid. A lot of times I've seen reps afraid to ask that question. They're like, Oh, we don't want people to go to competition. Here's the thing. They have policies in place where they have to go to competition. They have to get competitive bids. They're not going to sign off on hundred thousand dollar deals without anybody else looking at it. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Right. And then number four is, is there anything that you don't like about our solution compared to competition? And so it does a couple of things. The way that that's structured is it tells you who the competition is, what they're proposing, what they like versus yours versus they don't. So it starts to shape the solution. And then that way, if you really want to identify like, okay, is this apples to apples or is this not apples to apples, right? You could start to frame that up and basically you get complete visibility to what your competitors are proposing, dollar values, features, all those solutions, and it removes the number one reason why deals are lost. And that's just not knowing right? So it brings all that to the surface.
1: What you're doing there is really, really critical. So I used to sell this huge ERP system where it would literally take the customer 18 months to go through an evaluation process. And I had a hundred different product SKUs. And the worst thing that I could possibly do was not ask where we stood relative to the competition, And especially what you're doing, you're saying, okay, is there anything that you really like about the competition that you haven't seen from us? Because it was an 18-month sales cycle, and there was no way they were going to remember every single product that we had shown them. And so they would say, yeah, we really love X feature that the competitor has. Like, we wish you had something like that. And I'm like, we literally showed that to you in the demo. And so... One of the things you have to remember as a salesperson is while your thing is really, really close to your heart, like you're thinking about your product and your solution all day, every day, your customer isn't living it. And so we oftentimes have to repeat the same message two, three, four times throughout the sales process, not because your customer's dumb, but because they've got other things going on. And if you don't hammer that stuff, they forget so what do you do in the situation where like the customer says, yeah, you know, Ryan, you guys are really, really losing to Armand's solution. Like we like them way more. Do you abandon ship? Do you do anything strategic there to try to like resurrect the deal? What's
2: your approach if they give you negative feedback? Here's the thing. It's it's surfacing the positive or the negatives. And like, you can't overcome objections if you don't know about them or if they're not brought to the surface, right? So someone's like that, like, yeah, the other solution's killing it, like, a lot of times, it's just like, oh, well, hey, totally get it. Why is that? What do you find amazing? Because I want to make sure we're apples to apples with what you're doing. And at the end of the day, I know no matter what solution that you pick, I just want you to be informed and know that you know if, if we didn't configure our solution exactly the way you need it, that you have it, you know, blah 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 blah. And a lot of times, if you ask the questions in this way, people will be open because they're like, you're trying to help them, right? You're not you're not trying to pull one over on them, and it, so like they'll say that like, okay, well, the other competitor is priced much more competitively. It's like, well, what's more competitively? Oh, well, you know, it's, and they're like, well, I can't give you their pricing, right? You're like, okay, well, then percentage, are we talking 10%? Are we talking 15 and 20? What's significant? And you won't believe how many times they will tell you. (laughs) They'll tell you exactly where it is. Like, well, they're 20% cheaper and they give 10 more licenses. And then you're like, well, does it include these variables, which you said were very important? They're like, Well, no, that's something that they said they would handle later. And it's like, oh, well we could customize the solution and take that off if budgeting is a requirement and then fit that in and then like, oh, you can? you know. So a lot of times it's just misunderstanding like what you're talking about and overcoming that and working through that. So yeah, I hope that helps. So let's say we get through, where do I stand? So now ideally I, in a green light
0: scenario I exceed their expectations. There are a few reasons they wouldn't move forward. They like me more than the competition, for the most part. What's the second set of questions I should be asking?
2: So number five is: Are there any outstanding steps in your evaluation process? Right. Notice how I didn't word it like, "Hey, can you make the decision on this?" (laughs) You know, or "Are we good to go on this?" It's like, "Hey, in your evaluation process, are there any other steps?" That's a simple way of asking: Like, do you have to check with other vendors? Do you have to talk to operations. If you're in it and finance, like that brings to the surface, those areas. And a lot of times additional players that you didn't know existed will come to the surface at the end of the sales process. Okay. Number six is, you know, if you're doing it right, you should be prepping and setting up the reference call. So it's like, what's your feedback from the reference calls? Were they positive? Were they negative? Did you like the person? Right. And a lot of times, you know, Once again, they'll be like, yeah, really good. They liked you guys, but it's a different situation. Well, how is it a different situation, right? Then you overcome that objection. Number seven is like, what steps are left in your formal approval process? This might sound a little redundant with the evaluation process. Evaluation is more surfacing, sometimes basically competitors. And and this is more designed around what's the step-by-step they need to do. And I'll give you an example. So for example, there was there was one opportunity, the deal was, it wasn't a huge deal, but it was probably maybe 250K a year. So it was a good size deal. And what we found out is even though we were working with the CIO and the CEO, once it reached a certain threshold, they had to bring it to a board meeting. And so what happens is they're like, okay, well, we have to bring it to the board and let them know that this is a priority project. We want to move forward with it. And then the question is like, okay, you got to get dates. Okay, well, when's the next board meeting? The next board of meetings in three weeks. And what you're trying to do is set up a reverse close to implementation. That's seven. Number eight is what is your contract review process and who are the people involved with that, right? And so you wanna get hyper-specific because you'll there'll be weird people that crawl out of finance that you didn't even know existed, especially with bigger deals that you gotta handle. And so those will get to the surface. You include that in the timeline. And then number nine, and, and this is probably what you hear, but if you do it this order, You're like, okay, well, the deal size is going to be X. So, what level do you need to sign off for that? Who's the final signer? And here's the weird thing Armand and and Nick, we were doing this and we were working a deal with Lowe's, okay, like Lowe's Home Improvement. They were spending $1.2 million a month on the solution we were proposing. And so, we were working with some high level people there. However, the person we were working with was a senior director of, of sourcing. And that guy had budget responsibility to save. $50 $50 million a year, right? That was his, that was like his reverse quota, right? Guess what his sign-off approval dollar amount was? It was $50,000. <laughs> he had responsibility for $50 million and he could only sign off for $50,000. So the name of the company, the title, the vanity components don't matter. That's why you got to ask these specific questions. Cause that's when deals sit there for months and months and months and months. And you're like, why are these in the closing? my guy said, we're good to go right? That's because he's got to take it up four other levels.
0: All right. So we've got through the, how do I get this done? Questions. What is my
2: final bucket of questions I can be asking? All right. Final bucket is when do we get this done? Okay. So this is for predictability of forecasting and then also for your own personal sanity. So you just don't have those deals that float out in the space. So these are really designed, these three questions to co-author a closing project plan. With your prospect so that basically you could be the guide throughout that process. So kind of like what we did on the previous step, we we understood, okay, their evaluation process, evaluation is external, right? How do they evaluate that they're making the best decision in terms of who they're picking? And then the uh, decision, or I should say the, the the final approval process, what's the steps, right? Okay. So number 10 is like, what's your timeframe for implementation? I started to reference that on the last one. And you're going to find answers that are all over the board. They'll be like, oh, well, we, you know, I think we, we could do this in three months. Sometimes it'll be like six months. You're like, well, why so far out? And they're like, well, you know, it probably takes two months to implement and then we got to do this. And then that's the way where you back them into it more. And you're like, well, actually, we could implement in two weeks. So here's the dates you told me. It looks like with the whole entire process that you have, that puts us out about a month you know, we go through contracts, that's another two weeks. So we could actually implement in two months. Would that be good for you? If we could do that? You know, is that a line? Would that be better than six months? So like, yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing, Ryan, right? So that's one example.
1: Ryan, one thing to, to add there, I've head prospects, I'll ask them like, Hey, like what's sort of your sense of when you're hoping to be live with this solution. And I've, I don't know, like 10% of the time, the prospect says yesterday, like trying to be funny and their way of saying, Oh, I need this really quickly. And that doesn't really help me other than it's like, okay, this is urgent. And so what somebody taught me to say is like, okay, well, I don't sell a time machine, a solution, but realistically, if you're saying yesterday and you want this now, like really, when are you hoping to get this thing stood up? Like you shouldn't accept a fake answer. As an answer, when they say yesterday,
2: oh, exactly. And and I, I haven't used the time machine close, but like another one would be like for that is just like, well, why why would you need it done yesterday? Like, what's what's driving you for to make it that level of priority, Mister Customer? And like that, the cool thing is with that. You might find out something really important that you didn't know about that's driving it. And then you just keep pounding that in their head. You're like, okay, well, you said the CEO needed this. How fast can we get that done? Does this mean you want it done as fast as possible? Yes. Okay, let's do that, right? Here's the fastest I think we could do it. And then you timeline all those steps out to make that a reality. It's like Because then it's basically like you're giving them a task list of what to do and who to do it with, but it's based on their decision, not yours, right? So, yeah, I love that. 11 is what steps need to happen in advance of implementing. Those are those like security, you know, you have to pass through security. You have to pass through this, you know, just hoops you have to jump through to get it done. What do you do when you have a prospect
1: who doesn't know? Like maybe you have a sort of unsophisticated buyer who isn't sure like what needs to happen. Where it's like, oh, we haven't really bought an ERP system like this before. So like, I'm not even totally
2: clear on like what our whole org needs to check this off. That's the beauty of this process because... Like you're taking them by the hand and you're like, okay, well, is there a similar solution like dollar value to the ERP or of complexity that you've implemented before? No. Okay. Well, who can we talk to that that knows that, right? Well, I guess I got to talk to my boss. When can you talk to him? How soon can you talk to him? Okay. Well, I have my one-on-one every Monday. It's like, okay, can you talk to him next Monday and then like find out what that is so then we could finish building out this plan. That's kind of how I would handle it. And then last but not least, it's just like, are there any additional meetings that need to happen prior? And so that just surfaces like other people that they have to, and I'm doing air quotes guys, run it by that are not necessarily decision makers, but those people need to be comfortable with the solution before, you know, the thumbs up is given. So that, that one's really important as well. So yeah, that's the stack that's 12. And a lot of times, you know, it's going deeper. And the best thing you could do if you don't know or something's confusing is just ask like, well, why is that? You know, just be curious. Why is that? You know? And so, uh, yeah, that that's helped a lot with really big deals. And so oftentimes you find
0: you're in these deals that they're wasting your time, right? Maybe you've got the wrong person on the account. Maybe you're in the wrong part of the organization. Maybe it's the wrong company, right? And so you recognize that this deal is selling, but maybe you think the company's still good. What's the best way to rejigger your deal so that you either get to the right person or you reorganize the sales cycle so you can sort of start from scratch?
2: Yeah. So that's a great question, Armand. It's near and dear to my heart because we made an $18 million mistake. It's like 23 months. We went through 31 competitors and we lost to the 32nd competitor. So it was like an RF, like a grizzly RFP with hundreds of pages and loads of crap that you had to deal with. And so anyways, we learned from that. There's two questions that you could ask that surface, whether you're in the right place and spending with the right time and the right people. And so those two questions are, who actually pays for this now out of their budget? And if it's it's a partial solution, let's say like, so let's say it spreads across three departments, you know, it might hit, let's say marketing, it might hit operations, and it might hit, you know, the the business component, right? They still allocate dollars. They have to. That's just the way the accounting works. So what you'll find is sometimes one department will pay for 70, the other 20, and the other 10. So you better darn well have alignment at that 70% group. And that needs to be the key focus area. So that's the first question. The second question, this is what bit us in the butt with that $18 million mistake. So the next question is who, after we implement or after the solution's implemented, who is going to own the budget then? Right? Because- what happened was we we asked the question the right way of who owned the budget now but what we didn't account for is when they implemented this new solution there's going to be a completely new owner of the budget and so essentially that person had the final final on who to go with and so what happened is we took those learnings from that and then ended up closing a 20 million dollar deal in like 3 quarters of the time even though we lost that 18 million dollar deal before so big learning so anybody highly highly recommend you ask those two questions at the beginning of every sales cycle. So Ryan, in the beginning all the way in the beginning of
1: this episode you talked a little bit about like asking for referrals and one of the things you talked about was like the timing of like when they're at peak emotion. And so oftentimes a customer is at peak emotion when they sign the contract or when the thing goes live and they're really happy that hey, the software actually did what we promised it would. So like I want to put you in a situation where you're sitting in the room with Armand again. He's that champion who got the deal done and he is thrilled, he's happy. What do you say to Armand in that situation to solicit a referral?
2: Yeah, I would ask him to rate his experience on a scale of one to five. And so then how to ask him is basically, you just kind of say, you have him rate you and you're like, okay, cool. So we're we're four. I noticed that you're connected to these three people. And these three people, by the way, are, are people you need to have ready when you go in. I know you're connected to these three people. Would you be cool If I sent them an email and then copied you just saying like, hey, we just implemented, Armand gave me a five and was really happy. And I'd like to talk to you because we're spending more time on our customers instead of new business development because that's what we're doing as an organization. We're spending more money on customer success and product than on chasing new customers. And I wanna work with more people like you, right? And so most of the time they gave you a good reading. They don't wanna go back on their word, right? Next thing you do, you made it super easy because they don't need to do anything. They're just, you're just basically CCing them on the email. And then last but not least, you're giving them a good reason, which I could go into, but it's in uh, Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. Basically, people that were waiting in line to get copies, right? Now this is Cialdini's book based on 30 years of psychological research. If someone just is like, hey, can I cut in line, right? 60% of the time, they're like, sure. But they're like, hey, can I cut in line because I'm running late for this meeting? That number went up to ninety four percent, right? And then if they say, "Hey, can I cut in line?" and they give a reason that it made no sense whatsoever, it just made no sense. Guess what the percentage went up to?
1: It's still super high. It's like I think the example I've heard that study. It's they say, "Can I cut in line? I need to make some copies." And it's like, "Yeah, you're li- we're literally all in line to do this," and people still let you. And the lesson there is you got to just ask because already you're at 60%. But then if you give a reason and you should do this, salespeople should do this at any time that they're asking questions is always be prepared to give a reason for the question that you asked to justify the reason that you asked. So- I love that. I love the line about, we're trying to invest more in customer success than new business development, hence why I'm reaching out via a present customer. So we're running out of time here, Ryan, and we got to move to our final question. And so the final question is this, we've talked about a ton of really great things that salespeople should be doing in their sales process. Now let's flip that on its head and let's talk about the final question, which is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to stop
2: doing because it hurts them more than it helps? Okay, this is happening right now, and I literally just went on a rant on this. Okay, big, big. Listen, listen. Like I grab you by the shirt. Listen to me, right? For this one, don't use the pandemic as an excuse not to meet your customers live. Okay, if you're trying to sell big deals, their job is at risk. I just met with someone yesterday that that I had short Zoom meetings with. Completely transformed the relational experience I had with them because I went to lunch with them. Don't use that as an excuse find a way to meet with them live. It doesn't matter if their, their office is locked down, they want to get out to take them out to lunch, take them out to coffee, take them out to dinner. It'll be worth your while. And you will be different than 99% of everybody else out there who's saying I can't meet with them because their office is closed. Take advantage of it. It's a huge, huge, very old school. It'll work well though. Awesome.
1: Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we jump off, is there anything that you want
2: to plug or promote? So yeah, if you are loving podcasts because you're listening to this show, come check mine out too. It's called The Scale-Up Show. I interview a lot of founders. I do have revenue leaders on as well. So a little bit different format, but I I have actionable insights every episode. So yeah, if you want to check that out, that'd be awesome. Beautiful. Everybody go check Ryan and his stuff out and
1: stick around for a 60-second recap from me and Armand coming up soon.
0: Your top four takeaways from this episode with Ryan Staley include, number one, in the five by five by five, what you got to do is figure out those five deals that you lost and try to get rid of those deals on the front end of your deal process and instead replace them with your biggest and fastest moving deals. Try to figure what that is up front. Number two. Ask questions to determine where you stand in the process before you spend three, four, five months in the sales cycle. That brings us to number three. One example of that may be, hey, what are things that your competitors have shown you that we haven't or where are our competitors better than you? And lastly, that brings us to number four as well. You can start to ask, are there any outstanding steps in your evaluation process? So you force them to think about what are the key steps to get this thing done? Alrighty, Nick, how can people help us out?
1: Well, sometimes at the end of the show, I ask our listeners to write a written review of the show, but that's a lot of work. And you know what? I don't want to make you guys work that hard this week. If you haven't reviewed the show, you also have the option to give us a rating. Like, you know, those little five stars in Apple, and I don't want you to do a lot of work. Just go and click the five star and then move on with your day. It takes about 0.2 seconds and it's one click to change a life. We'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club.
0: This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Six Sense. The link is in the show notes.
1: Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with demand base, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes.